and welcome to you Watson Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Robin James about her new book, Resilience and Melancholy, Pop Music, Feminism and Neoliberalism, which is published by Zero Books in 2015. So well, welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. Thank you for having me. I'm oh, delighted it's, to be it's here. Quite, I'm, I'm delighted to, uh, to be talking to you. So um, on this episode, I'm on with uh, Robin James, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at uh, UNC Charlotte. And her new book is called Resilience and Melancholy, Pop Music, Feminism and Neoliberalism. Um, and it was published this year, I think, is that right? Mm-hmm. Just in February. Great. Yeah, uh, by Zero Books. Uh, and Robin was kind enough to send me a really great um, ebook, actually, which um, I don't know what the program was, but it was very readable. Uh, it's nicer than having a PDF. So, yeah, thanks. That was all zero. <laughs> oh, that was all zero. Well, yeah. A shout out to Zero Books. Then they uh, <laughs> they're, they're doing electronic publishing well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, and it seems like people have really been into the, to the ebook. Um, so I'm really happy to have that, that option available for people. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Cause, um, actually it's, it's something that I think we're going to see a lot more of, particularly, um, for books that are, are kind of very timely, um, you know, kind of critical engagements with contemporary culture, which is exactly what your book is. So yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really great. That's a good segue, I think. Yeah. Um, one of the things I always like to do on the podcast is to give people a sense of, of where books have come from. Um, so I wonder if we could kick off by you telling us a bit about um, what your kind of intellectual background is, um, maybe a bit about you know what you teach, um, and where this book has come from. Sure. Um, well, I've always been interested in music and philosophy. Those are my two majors in college, and I've been sort of thinking about both of them for as long as I've been thinking, basically. Um, and so my training, um, like I said, in college was both sort of in classical Western art, music theory and history and continental philosophy. And then I decided I wanted to go to grad school in philosophy because the questions I had about music were ultimately philosophical questions, I think. So, um, my work, I guess you could say, like, I use music to do philosophy. So philosophy is always about something, right? Philosophers have to look at something to analyze, right? We're not just sort of pulling ideas out of thin air, right? We have to have something to think through them with. And so I use pop music in particular to, to think through political concepts, mostly, um, or questions, questions related to gender, race, social inequality, but also sort of broader questions about value, right? Like, why do people find this particular kind of music meaningful in this particular way? Um, so they're both, like I said, it's political questions in general about sort of broader social issues and structures, but also sometimes um, value questions or philosophical questions specific to music. Like, you know, why do people think this is good or bad or whatnot? So that's um, that's sort of big picture broadly kind of what my work's about. I teach... Um, I'm in a philosophy department, so I teach a lot of philosophy classes, but I also work pretty closely with the gender studies program at my school. So most of my teaching is between philosophy and gender studies. So like I'm teaching a, a class right now on gender, media and aesthetics. And so we're looking at, you know, some stuff in philosophical aesthetics, feminist aesthetics, uh, feminist art history, musicology, but also, um, you know, sort of popular music criticism 
um, and work on gender and race and social media, some film theory, right? So sort of all over the, the buffet of media studies as it relates to gender uh, is, is, is this class. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a good description. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also kind of what my work draws on, right? Like my background's in philosophy, but I'm kind of reading all over, um, you know, theoretical work about sound, music, film, music videos, stuff like that. Yeah. I see one of the things I really liked in the book was when you were describing your methods, you were talking about it being both the philosophy of music and philosophy through music. Mm hmm. I think you've captured it quite well there, actually, those two elements. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. Cool. So uh, I suppose the, the place to start with the book, um, and it is exactly that, you know, your engagements with um, both kind of contemporary critical theory and contemporary popular culture, is how the book starts, which is with a really interesting discussion and analysis of a Calvin Harris song, which has got Florence Welsh of Florence and the Machine fame singing on it, called Sweet Nothing. And you kind of open up all of the themes in the book um, by discussing both some technical elements of how the song is put together and also some elements of, of the lyrics as well. So I wonder if you could say a bit about why you started the book with that song. Sure. Well, if you're interested in political questions, um, I think popular music is a really important place to, to think because popular music is both what many people know and like, but it's also popular because it makes sense to most people, right? So if you're looking for um, the sort of common sense worldview one of a society, one way to get at that is sort of what it, the worldview is reflected in, in pop songs um, rather than like art songs. So um, I chose this song in particular, both because it was a hugely popular song, right? It was a number one in the UK and charted in the US, but also because it did a really good job of tying um, several elements together, right? The musical element and the gender element, I think, were the, the two most prominent ones. So the song with its lyrics, its video, and its compositional structure embodies resilience, right? Both sort of the feminized resilience of Florence's character in the video, but also this sort of sonic resilience in Harris's composition of the song. And I'll explain that more detail in, in a second. But broadly, what the song does is it intensifies nothing until it becomes not just something, but a spectacular something. So it turns damage. It could be either aural damage, such as the sore, which I'll talk about in a second, yeah. or Florence's feminized damage, like domestic abuse, right? Because the video is about, um, basically, Florence's character has this uh, abusive ex-boyfriend that uh, Calvin Harris then beats up for her, right? So it's about sort of her narrative of overcoming domestic abuse. So the video sort of turns that into spectacularly pleasurable overcoming, right? Like we we take as viewers of this video take pleasure in the way that she transforms damage into something um, pleasurable for us in the same way that uh, Harris's composition transforms sonic damage into something pleasurable for us. So first I'll sort of talk about resilience because that's the concept in the title, but then I'll talk about how the soar or the music embodies that. So sorry, my, it, it's the mailman must be here. My dog's barking. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, so resilience is a type of 
spectacular therapeutic overcoming that does work for bigger social institutions like white supremacist patriarchy or capitalism. Yeah. So re- go ahead. Because because your your sort of key argument in the book is this idea of. Um, and, and I'm quoting, resilience discourse is what ties contemporary pop music aesthetics to neoliberal capitalism and racism, sexism. And, and just, you know, it seems as if the idea of resilience is, is the kind of the, the key um, to understanding a whole bunch of contemporary uh, social conditions and social relations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do is sort of focus on maybe two narrow aspects of the of it and show how those two um, particular aspects are interrelated, right? Through, because um, as, I, as I argue in the book, that this idea of resilience is what ties sort of structures of feminine subjectivation, right? So like we, it's, there's this ideal of femininity that we expect women to embody now, right? Like there's a, in the US, there's this campaign called uh, something like strong, not pretty, right? Yeah. So whereas we used to expect girls to be like passive and pretty and not strong. I mean, Mad Max is even an example of this. Right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Women yeah. should be strong and have grit and overcome. Right. So it's this gendered ideal, but it's also um, this aesthetic structure. Right. That we can find in like the composition of songs itself. So it's the same logic, just manifesting in different aspects of society. And, and yeah. how does this play out kind of what would be the term sort of music, musicologically, you know? So, I mean, the, the idea you touched on this idea of the sore and, you know, drops mm-hmm. and stutters and stuff like that. And how, how does this relate? So um, let me let me lay out a brief sort of schematic of how resilience works with respect to gender. And then I'll because I think that makes it easier to explain for people who don't know anything about music, yep, how fantastic. it works yep. in music. So. Um, I identify sort of three basic steps in resilience. So there's the first step, you sort of articulate your gendered damage, right? Like it could be like, I used to hate my body, or I was a victim of domestic abuse, or um, I was held back in my career, or I, you know, right? So some version of um, trauma related to patriarchy, right? Like I'm a woman in patriarchy and patriarchy damaged me in these ways, right? Um, So you articulate your gendered damage, and then you spectacularly overcome it, right? In a way that people can sort of see that you have triumphed, triumphed over this thing that held you back, right? And the spectacle is actually key, right? Because there's plenty of ways to like heal from trauma or live with trauma, but not all of them involve this sort of like garish, obvious, explicit showing other people just how much you've triumphed, Right. So you show your damage and then you spectacularly overcome it so that other people can see because the point of resilience is to produce that spectacle so that other people can consume it in various ways. Right. Um, I talk about resilience like as a way of producing uh, whatever uh, hegemonic social institutions need. Right. Like so, um, for example, uh, nowadays we tell ourselves like things like racism and sexism are over. Right. So resilience discourse is one way of sort of producing the evidence of this idea, right? Like, oh, sexism is over because, you know, at one point I might've, you know, hated my body and thought I was too fat, but now it's okay to have curves, right? So like, we're not oppressing women anymore. See? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's obviously these discourses are, are common, both, you know, 
in the United States and in the UK, but also actually cropping up all over the world as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the basic sort of structure of resilience, right? There's damage, spectacle, and then some sort of gain or pleasure that supports um, normativity. And so in music, this plays out um, in what I call the sore. And I get that term from Dan Barrow's essay in The Quietus. But I actually have a more narrow definition of it than than Barrow does, because um, I'm looking specifically at um, what I call EDM pop. So it's, you know, sort of 2010 to 2013 was, I guess you could say, the, the sort of peak of this era where top 40 pop was explicitly drawing on um, sort of the mainstream Vegas EDM, right? Calvin Harris, David Guetta, that sort of stuff. So a soar is a way of climaxing a song, not through harmonic dissonance, but through rhythmic and timbral intensification, right? So often in terms of timbre, there's like a swoosh up, right? Like a, right? Sort of like a wind sound so that it feels like soaring. But usually the rhythm does most of the work in a soar. So there's, there's rhythmic events like a drum beat or a hand clap, and they they don't get faster because the meter doesn't change, but the number of events in a beat increases exponentially, right? So you have like two, then four, then eight, then 16, right? It's almost like Zeno's paradox, right? You yeah. keep putting more and more in, right? So there's more and more and more until either you have um, this, this implication that you've passed the point that you can tell individual rhythmic events apart. Right. So, you know, how like you see a film as one continuous image, because at 24 frames per second, we can't distinguish among separate visual events. It's like a sonic parallel to that. Right. So we keep getting more and more and more and more and more rhythmic events. So it seems like either like you sometimes there's like a siren or a scream, right, like a continuous tone or sometimes um, it's almost like um, you've just like totally overblown your ears. So there's no sound at all. Right. But there's this implication of sort of sonic damage, right. Transgressing the limit of oral perception. Right. So you soar up to that transgression and then there's a big hit on the downbeat of the next measure. Right. And so that's kind of like the resolution. So that's how, that's how these EDM pop songs create this, this effect of climax or soaring. Right. So they generate damage. Right in a really spectacular and loud and transgressive way. And then that damage is the source of the aesthetic pleasure we feel in the song, right? So it's, it's the same sort of logic as, as you get with resilience discourse um, in, in terms of gender. You hear it here uh, just sort of purely formally, structurally in terms of sound. I mean, it's really interesting because thinking in, in kind of critical theoretical or philosophical terms, those kinds of ideas point towards the Frankfurt School and people like Adorno. But I'd say the kind of the major uh, maybe theoretical influence uh, that I got from the book, at least, was uh, Michel Foucault um, and writers who've come after him and the idea of biopower. So I wonder how does the kind of musical, uh, how does the music analysis connect up with your discussion of biopower, which takes in ideas about bodies uh, that have value about um, rejections of particular um, forms um, of contemporary American identity, such as blackness or femininity. Where where does biopower fit in? 
Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so I'd say that um, biopolitics is, um, uh, as I understand it, would be a way of organizing. Um, well, it's a way of organizing society, and that's also what that's also how I view things like gender and race and class. So you could say what I'm talking about is biopolitical white supremacist patriarchy. So, um, and I guess the way I would describe that is, you know, following from Foucault, the idea that um, certain, let me rephrase that. So biopolitics basically says we value life and we want everyone to, you know, sort of live the healthiest, most optimal life at the same time that we want society itself to be healthy. But in order to do that, um, and this is Foucault's point, and this is other people who write after him, they, they make this point too. Um, some people don't count as people, right? Mm. Some people have to die so that others can live, right? And so um, that's, for Foucault, race is that line that cuts who gets to live and who must die so that others can live. Um, and so that's, that's the basic sort of framework of biopolitics I'm working on, but how it connects up to music I would say is that, um, especially in pop music um, from the 20th century onward, right, like our structures and aesthetics of pop music are deeply racialized and gendered, right? So the same sorts of uh, logics and economies that organize gender and race more broadly in our society, you find these deeply uh, in in music themselves, right? So um, one of the things I talk about um, in the book is how the sore is feminized, right? So the, the, the sore sort of performs the resilience we seek to embody, right? Especially women seek to embody. And this is probably why you find it in pop music a lot, right? Because this is music um, that's generally understood to be for women audiences. Yeah, it has a, a target demographic. Yeah, yeah. So um, why do people like the sore? Well, because it embodies the same logic that we're supposed to, that, that we get rewarded socially for performing. Right. So it's a, um, the affective power of the music is because it makes sense to us um, because it, it's literally doing the same thing that, that we're supposed to do and we're rewarded for doing. So when we maybe I don't know that I go so far as to say it's Pavlovian, but, it, you know, like <laughs> we usually get rewarded for doing this thing. So when the, the media we consume does this thing, we're like, oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Right? Mi- mirroring yeah. The, the kind of. I suppose, appropriate and desired and, and kind of productive embodied forms that um, that you think in the book, at least, are kind of key to neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you mentioned sort of, you know, Adorno and Frankfurt School critical th- theory earlier. And I'd say, like, they're definitely, I'm doing something similar in terms of trying to find in pop culture, the logics, the bigger logics that organize society and figure out, um, you know, in a, in a way, you know, sometimes I talk about it, society is complicated, but pop songs are three minutes long. So, <laughs> so if society and pop songs follow the same general logics, it's much easier to analyze a three minute long song than it is to analyze all of society. Yeah. Well, um, I, I suppose the, the reason, um, or, or maybe what, struck me as really differentiating um, the book was the idea, like it's clear that you 
you're really, I don't know if sympathetic would be the right word, but you know, you get why this music matters to people, how it can have value, you know, why it's important. And, mm. and at no point are you kind of dismissive in that, I suppose, Frankfurt School tradition of, you know, pop being, you know, bubblegum for the masses or baby food or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, like, I really like that Calvin Harris song, <laughs> like personally, like apart from my own sort of, you know, sometimes there's music I study and I might not like it, but I find it intellectually interesting. And sometimes there's stuff that I like, but I don't find it intellectually interesting. But like that Calvin Harris song, I really like it. And there are some songs in the book that like, personally, I like them a lot. So um, yeah, I'm it, in part, like, I, I guess you could say I'm sympathetic to people's liking of the music because I myself like some of it. Um, I don't see it as something, you know, that those uneducated people like because they don't really understand it. Like, I find it compelling, too. Yeah. And, and it's no, and I think it comes through in the book. Um, I wonder if we can talk about resistance, because um, the second chapter in the book, drawing on... Um, those ideas about, you know, particular kind of appropriate, sanctioned, productive um, bodies or gendered identities, uh, you know, ethnic and racial mm-hmm. groups. The, the second chapter really kind of gets into how um, we might kind of resist uh, particular neoliberal ideas, drawing on the ideas about death, about the idea of kind of unprofitable uh, lives. Um, and you use two kind of um, well, a punk band, and then uh, I never know how to classify Atari Teenage Riot, but, you know, certainly <laughs> yeah. kind of a, a very loud band. <laughs> they so they the call themselves Digital Riot. Hardcore. That's the genre they classify themselves as, I guess. <laughs> so, so how does that work? How do um, how do these two bands kind of show us uh, something of uh, of the way of resistance? Sure. Um, I guess first I'd start by saying I. I think resistance isn't, and this is me being a philosopher trying to be mm-hmm. precise about terms. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know that resistance is exactly the right word and for a couple of reasons. I think it's kind of modernist yeah. itself. And also resistance is precisely the fuel for something like resilience or creative destruction. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'd rather think of something like alternative ways of living, right? Because if biopower is about normalizing a certain kind of life, right, then I want to think about alternative modes or concepts of life that might, to hegemonic social institutions, look unviable, right? That's why I use this concept of death, right? Like, it might be an unviable way of living if the point of life is to support white supremacist patriarchy, right? So, or living in this way, if we all lived in this way, then white supremacist patriarchy would die. Right. So it's it's kind of like alternative models or or ways of living. And that that's, I guess, the way I'm framing it. So the, the, the way I got to um, the Sex Pistols and Atari Teenage Riot is there's been, well, I guess, so Lee Edelman wrote this book, No Future, in 2004. So I guess it's about 10 years ago now. Um, and it was really controversial, in, especially in queer theory, but to some extent in, in feminist theory. Um, and there's been lots and lots of debates about it. And in one of the debates, uh, especially with Jack Halberstam, um, Halberstam picked up on the fact that no future, right, is the refrain to the Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen, right? Yeah. So um, 
Halberstam, you know, sort of looks closely at the lyrics and Edelman and Halberstam have this back and forth at the MLA, the Modern Language Association, and that gets published. And so I'm like, okay, so we're talking about this idea of death or negativity, which is what Edelman's book is about, right? He's thinking about queer death or negativity as ways of um, not living or, you know, living alternatively or living not in bad faith is probably how I describe it. Um, and Halberstam's looking at this song, but no one actually listened to the music in that song. <laughs> right? So I'm like, well, <laughs> let's listen to the music. And yep. um, one thing I noticed is that um, the the guitar riff, the main guitar riff in God Save the Queen, is it's not sampled, but it's reperformed in Atari Teenage Riot's Delete Yourself, You Have No Chance to Win. And that came out in 1995. So um, I, I just kind of asked, all right, so what if we follow the music here and think about the difference between like death or negativity and deletion, right? How, how is the Sex Pistols use of, of negativity or anarchy or whatever sonically, how is that different from what Atari Teenage Riot does sonically with that same kind of musical material? And how might the differing contexts um, tell us about the different... Um, modes of queerness or queer alternative ways of living between the 70s and the 90s, right? Because what I argue is that um, what Atari Teenage Riot are actually talking about is something like biopolitics, right? So it's in which um, it's, and and Foucault talks about this, right? So like, it's not a, a juridical model where power says, you are permitted or not permitted to do this. And in Mm. that sort of model, negativity would be a form of resistance, right? So what I'm arguing is that, so the Sex Pistols and implicitly Edelman are sort of working on this older modernist model, but Atari Teenage Riot are actually sort of thinking more neoliberally, more biopolitically um, with with their use of anarchy or what, what they call riot sounds. But ultimately what I show is that, so like the, the big picture lesson here is that um, just as, um, you know, in the 90s, the aesthetic strategies of the 70s didn't work anymore. In 2015, the aesthetic strategies of the 1990s don't work anymore because they have been co-opted. Because the very same sounds that Atari Teenage Riot were using in 1995 as sort of... Um, you know, alternative, riotous, fucking up hegemony, blah, blah, blah. Those same sounds are the bread and butter of top 40 pop right now. So Atari Teenage Riot's model was, uh, what would I say, oppositional then, but not now. We need a new a new alternative. So, I mean, we'll we'll com- come back to go that ahead. Um, when we conclude. I, I, I think what's really interesting is um, the way that question of a new alternative crops up kind of again um, later on in the book. But in order to get there, you um, it's not a detour, but, but you know, you kind of follow on into much more kind of mainstream um, contemporary pop with mm-hmm. um, an analysis of um, the kind of the sense of overcoming um, that permeates Beyonce's music. Um, and you relate this directly to how, uh, contemporary neoliberal society frames particular kinds of blackness as as being valueless or um, you know unproductive or, or being 
you know, the, those sections of society that, that have no biopolitical power. And I wonder if you could sort of talk me through chapter three and that um, engagement with Beyonce. Sure. Um, I'd say chapter three is kind of the heart of the book. Um, actually, that's, um, that's where everything kind of comes together. And in chapter three, I sort of show how resilience is both a gendering and a racializing process. And um, through readings primarily of Beyonce's video phone and Lady Gaga's telephone, mm. I, I show how resilience is anti-black in two ways or how the sort of the overcoming of some uh, relies on the sort of construction of a population of people as incapable of overcoming or incapable of resilience. So I think it's anti-Black in two specific ways. So um, I'll just sort of start with the main one that I talk about, which is um, sort of driven by these two videos. So if, if you watch video phone and telephone, you'll notice that in both videos, the women characters kill Black men. And that's like the, the central narrative of, of the video, right? So in telephone, which is probably more well-known, right, they... They Gaga and Beyonce team up to kill Beyonce's misogynist ex-boyfriend, right? And and a dinosaur with people, but that right, there's this idea of, you know, sort of cross-racial feminist alliance by killing a black man who seems to be responsible for all of the sexism in the world. Right. <laughs> and video phone is about Beyonce literally like taking the male gaze hostage and executing it. Right? Because there's these camera-headed dancers that she kidnaps and holds at gunpoint and then shoots full of arrows. Yeah. Right. So there's this idea that um, in both videos, very classic forms of sexism are embodied by black men who then the women characters execute and eliminate. Right. So, um, and that, that's actually this, watching those two videos is sort of the first thing that kind of clued me into the whole idea for this book, right? I'm like, yeah, that, why? There might be a problem here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa, this is not good. <laughs> so um, the effect of this is that um, oftentimes um, it's, sometimes it's urban Latino men, but it's often by and large, uh, you know, sort of poor working class black men are scapegoated as responsible for any remaining sexism. Right. As a way of saying, like, oh, look, they're so sexist, but yet we're not right. Like we're oh, we're done with patriarchy. But if if you're still expressing sexist attitudes then something must be wrong with you. Right. So it sort of pathologizes black masculinity in a slightly different way mm, yeah. right, than before. Right. So, um, I mean, another recent example of this was um, it was about six months ago. There was this video that the Hollaback Project did, and it got some internet, like it, it was a meme for a week, um, of, you know, a woman walking around New York City for 10 hours and getting street harassed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they cut all the white guys out of it. Yeah. Right. So there's this broader social phenomenon where we seem to want to make black men responsible for any remaining sexism in society. So there's, there's that aspect to the anti-blackness of resilience. But it also, resilience discourse also, I think, um, relies on some women being seen as incapable of resilience and in need of sort of white saviorism, right? So if, if we say, well, patriarchy is over, then women who are still damaged or incapable of leaning in must be individually weak 
we're irresponsible or something, right? You know, so the idea is that like, if I can overcome, you can too. And if you can't, well, then that's your fault, right? So it's this way of constructing the, the, the femininities that don't seem resilient as somehow pathological. Yeah, right? it, it's the classic liberal kind of problem, I suppose, of individualizing and making responsible for a whole range of social issues, but turning them into essentially kind of failed character traits almost. Yeah, and I think um, the sort of white saviorist attitude towards uh, especially black girls in Africa is an example of this. Or, you know, oh, we must save the women in Afghanistan, right? That sort of older Laura Bush thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, so there are some women who must remain unresilient and in need of saving, right? So so I think um, that's, those are the two examples of what I was talking about, about how women's resilience is also this racist project, right? Sort of cutting, cutting the color line slightly differently, right? Because Beyonce is black and she demonstrates resilience, right? So it's not that black people to court can't be seen as resilient, but because of the way society is organized, the populations that will generally appear to be non-resilient tend to be black, if, if that makes sense. Mm. Now, right? the- Go ahead. Sorry, you were gonna No, I was gonna say, so this is this is the trick, right? Like we can in the same way that society can say, like, well, you know, some women get to lean in, so we must not be sexist anymore. The parallel move is, well, we have a black president, so we must not be racist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean yeah. You, you see this in kind of contemporary uh media and cultural studies engagements with um Oprah and, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. um, ph- phenomenon of of again this sense of, you know, on the one hand, I suppose, something to aspire to, but also on the other hand, you know, a, a highly kind of individualizing and re- responsibilizing um, operation of power. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in, in how you kind of nuance the, um, those two moments of analysis in Chapter 3. In Chapter 4's comparison between resilience and melancholia, um, both through a discussion of goth aesthetics, which I found absolutely fascinating, but also in the comparison between Rihanna and Lady Gaga. So, uh, again, I, I'm interested in sort of how the argument carries over um, and how it might relate back to um, discussions of kind of alternative ways of life, of, of death, and, and, yeah, if not resistance, but, yeah, alternatives. Yeah. So, um Chapter four was sort of inspired by the critical response to Rihanna's unapologetic album, right? This, um, this is the album with diamonds and stay and I focus Mm -hmm. and and pour it up and I focus mainly on pour it up and diamonds. But what, what was really striking about this album is that this, so the songs are decidedly not about Chris Brown and they're not about domestic violence, but all of the blue chip music critics, you know, like in the LA Times, the New York Times, Pitchfork, they were all like, Rihanna is a, this is a dangerous album because Rihanna does not disavow Chris Brown, right? Does not triumphantly overcome her abuser and renounce him. Yeah, she's not resilient. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They expected resilience and that's not what Rihanna gave them. Um, so I sort of look at the um, the critical response to the album and say like, well, what did people expect of her and how did she fail to meet that expectation? 
And what was interesting is people would say things like, um, well, at least she could have written a banger, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, and they conclude their reviews that way, right? Like this might be politically dangerous and anti-feminist, but we could have excused that if her songs were like uplifting, right? So there was something about the music that was driving these critics' responses as well. Um, and so that had me really fascinated. Like, like why are people like, I, I sort of know what people expected out of the album, which was resilience, yeah. right? but what's she doing that people are in understanding as not resilient and especially at the level of the music. And so at the level of the music, she basically sort of evokes or calls on the idea of a sore, but then just doesn't do it. Right. She'll like say, this could be a sore, but it's not going to climax. That's basically the structure of diamonds, right? Like there are these fake out sores, right? So she's, she's not performing the sort of um, musical overcoming in the same way that she's not performing the gendered and racialized ideological overcoming. So, um, so, so that's the, the structure that I name melancholy, right? So melancholy would be, um, basically any way of dealing with trauma that is therapeutic for you, but not productive for hegemonic social institutions, right? Because that, like I said, that, that third step of resilience, right, this, this idea that your personal overcoming supports white supremacist patriarchy, supports capitalism, right? Yeah. Can be commodified, right? So melancholy would just be surviving, dealing with trauma in a way that doesn't have that perceived payoff for normativity for other people yeah um doesn't return you to being a good you know a good productive worker or yeah yeah it's not like so in rihanna's case it didn't give her the sort of quote-unquote feminist human capital right she was seen as irresponsible right she's not this sort of good girl doing the thing that good girls do right she was seen as irresponsible and and criticized for it yeah and and how does that contrast with um, Lady Gaga? So Gaga has this discourse of little monsters, right? Like this was her thing back when she blew up, right? Like, so her fan, she called her fan base little monsters. And there was this idea that like, no matter how monstrous you are, you are still valuable. And that's what makes you unique, right? And that's another instance of resilience, I think, right? Like here's our damage, and our damage is what makes us special and spectacular and important. So um, Gaga made a spectacle out of damage and then sort of overcame it in the sense of like, you know, you're born this way, you're great, whatever. Um, but Rihanna never makes a spectacle of her damage, right? She'll, I mean, even American Oxygen is sort of this way, right? Like, um, she's not explicitly naming something like um, anti-immigrant sentiment, but that's what the song is about. Hmm. Right. But interestingly, like um, in the, so the, the producers talk about Springsteen's born in the USA as an inspiration for the song. And in the same way that born in the USA got sort of misread as a super patriotic thing. Um, American oxygen can and does get misread as this super patriotic thing. Um, 
even though it's not. Um, and like a lot of the, the, the sort of melancholic songs on Unapologetic, American Oxygen doesn't go anywhere, right? Like there's no climaxes. It just sort of sits, right? Almost like Rihanna. So at the end of the Diamonds video, Rihanna just kind of floats in the water, right? There's no cresting waves. It's just like this um, almost deadness, right? Like there's no productivity mm, to it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Gaga totally does the sort of spectacular overcoming thing. Um, although I don't know what she's up to now. She sort of, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> went to jazz or something. <laughs> well, in, in, in the kind of, you know, the, the great, I suppose, almost, yeah, Foucauldian and critical theoretical tradition, that the question is always, you know, at which point will melancholia be? co-opted and made productive mm -hmm. and you know what will be the kind of uh, the next step uh, beyond this just as you know you kind of contrast the sex pistols with atari teenage riot mm -hmm. and I, I was struck by something in the conclusion where um you, you talk about the idea of bad investments um to kind of suck the life out of multiracial white supremacist patriarchy and, and i wonder if you could kind of talk us through what might be you know bad investments um maybe you know knowing that these can only last for so long before they, they face kind of, you know, becoming part of um, the system that they're antagonistic or, or alternative towards. Sure. So um, I guess I just preface this by saying like, there's no formula and that it's all local and contextual. Yeah. Um, but like one example I use um, is, and, and I like this example because it kind of, it's really multifaceted and it sort of shows how things work on a lot of levels. So, you know, there's the, these internet memes about um, like welfare mothers who buy iPhones and spend money on like manicures. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so yeah. there's this like irresponsible economic rationality, right? So if we're all supposed to be like economically rational subjects, um, the, this meme is about like the, the apparent economic irrationality of people on government assistance, right? But from another perspective, right, if, if, if every social message you get tells you that you are valueless and inherently pathological and ugly and worthless, spending money on a manicure to make yourself feel beautiful and valued, right, like that might actually be a really economically rational decision. Right. Like if society is trying to like basically traumatize you and you do something to deal with that trauma and make yourself feel better. That seems really healthy. Right. Mm. Right. So um, whereas white patriarchy might say black women on welfare getting their nails done are pathologically irrational. From another perspective, that seems like a totally economically rational decision, right? Like if, if I need to spend $30 on a manicure so that I can just survive and get through till next week, that's what I'll do. Right. Um, so that's, that's an example of a sort of quote unquote bad investment, right? Like it's not the kind of investment in myself or in other, you know, institutions that supports white supremacist patriarchal capitalism, right? But it's an investment in myself that actually helps me survive, right? And it's, I like that example because it shows how that 
that investment that that I need to survive is socially pathologized, right? So that's that's kind of what I mean by these quote unquote bad investments, right? Things that are actually healthy for you, but read as pathological because they're not the kinds of behaviors that hegemonic social institutions want you to perform. So so that's yeah, that's that's one example. That's really interesting. Um where do you go after this book? Are, are you kind of continuing to work through that philosophy of and philosophy through music, um, or are you kind of turning your kind of critical lens to something completely different in contemporary culture? Uh, are we are we going to see your your great book on I don't know Kant or something like this soon? <laughs> <or>? No, <laughs> I'm not the person to write on Kant, but. Um, <laughs> So I'm working on another manuscript right now um, that's uh, about, it's, it's about neoliberalism and sound and music. And the I don't really have a good title for it yet. Titles are like the hardest thing for me to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, the basic argument is that uh, various phenomena that we call neoliberal, right? Like, so clearly neoliberal political economy, um, algorithmic culture, um, post-identity politics, even stuff like new materialist theory, all of these phenomena that we call neoliberal mark their difference from modernity often by appealing to either explicitly or implicitly sonic terms and concepts, right? So the, the move is something like, well, modernity is visual, but we're sonic. So that's how we're different than modernity. And that's how we're new and implicitly better. So what I argue in the book is that, um, you know, so there's that, the sort of famous analysis of Las Meninas in the beginning of Foucault's Order of Things, right, where he's sort of saying, so this is modernity's uh, episteme or epistemology and gazing and visuality is central to that. So I sort of make the parallel move to say, well, actually, these various phenomena we call neoliberal their episteme or epistemology is not visual, but sonic, right? So the sort of the, the, the epistemology behind neoliberalism, in particular, the concept of the market as something that's um, a system of dynamic emergence, right? Signal emerging from noise, mm-hmm. success emerging from, right? Cr- success emerging from destruction, right? Um, the neoliberal understanding of the market parallels how physicists understand sound to work. So that's, that's the basic argument of the book. It's still (laughs) obviously still in process, but that's, that's, that's where I'm going. So it's, it's in some ways it kind of presumes the analysis that I did in the resilience book, but it's looking sort of definitely much more um, kind of theoretically and abstractly and, and a little less sort of, straight at the pop music aspect sounds great I uh, look forward to seeing thanks thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory I've been your host Dr David Ryan from Goldsmiths University of London on this episode I was talking to Robin James about a new book Resilience and Melancholy Pop Music Feminism and Neoliberalism published by Zimbabwe